Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Wild Tales podcast. I'm Jason Fox, and this series is all about incredible people doing incredible things, going beyond the limits to adventure all over the planet, and sometimes off it. The podcast is presented by the Book of Man and in partnership with Talisker, single malt whiskey made by the sea. My guest today is Tim Peake, a man who has been where only seven other Brits have ever been, into space. He was the first British European Space Agency astronaut to have been a crew member on the International Space Station where he caught the public imagination of his feats up there, including a spacewalk and him running a marathon on a treadmill. I speak to him about how he became an astronaut, what life is like in orbit, and his new book, Limitless. As usual, you've been asking me questions on Instagram for this episode. Because it's Christmas, I'll be sending out a Talisker Sea Salted Caramel gift pack for the person whose question I picked out. Anyway, here we go, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Right, here we are. Um, we're coming pretty much to the end of the second series of Wild Tales. And um, for the first time since episode one of the second series, when I was with Ollie because I locked down with him, we're doing an, a podcast in person. So I'm sat socially distanced, admittedly, but I am sat with our next guest, who is the legend that is Tim Peake. Hello. Thanks for coming along. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. And like you say, it's great to be in person, actually, after this year. It's really good. I know, yeah. It's it's crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm actually really nervous about this one because obviously, um, I mean, you're globally well known for living in space. Um, actually, there is a link between ourselves, sort of. And that was four years ago, whilst you were on the ISS, I actually was rowing across the ocean. And whilst I was on that boat, before I went on that boat, I've got a friend that works for him, Sat. We t- went to him at Old Street, which is where they're based in London, and asked him if we could borrow or have a lend of some communications equipment. He said, yes, we've got a couple of sat phones. We've got a BGAN terminal, which helps us link to the internet. And we also got a little tour of Sat's main building. And it was on that tour that he mentioned that they also supply some of the comms kit for the ISS. And I said, wow, it's a, that is amazing because when we're in the middle of the ocean... The closest person to us, ironically, isn't even on the planet, as as you obviously orbited. And I think, if I remember rightly, you put a tweet out to us. I, I did. I yeah. certainly did. I was following that. An amazing, amazing achievement. Yeah. Um, but it, it's weird, isn't it? That, that uh, yeah, somebody in space and somebody in the middle of the ocean are <laughs> the two closest people together. It, it very nearly blow, blew our minds because we were all quite simpletons on that boat, obviously, because to say yes to row across the ocean is pretty mental. Anyway. <laughs> but it was awesome. Anyway... Without banging on too much about what I've done, it's all about you today, obviously. Um, how's lockdown been for you? Because obviously you're a very busy person, but also I'm aware that you're used to being confined. Yeah, um, actually lockdown in a, in a selfish way has been 
brilliant in terms of spending time with the family, which is something that I haven't had much much of over the last sort of 10 years. So from that point of view, it's been fantastic. Obviously, you know, uh, we're going through a global pandemic. So um, and many, many people have been having a really, really tough time of it. Um, but uh, dealing with isolation as well is pretty easy, as um, as you'll know from lots of your training. You know, when you get trained to deal with specific circumstances, you tend to be able to do it quite well. Yeah. And we focus a huge amount on dealing with living in isolation and living in confined spaces with a few people who you really have to get along with. So um, implementing things like structure and routine to give you some stability um, so that everyone knows what they're doing. You know, these are things I started to introduce during lockdown with the family. Yeah. <laughs> they might not have appreciated it at the beginning, but actually they came round to, to realising that if you're going to be living together in a confined space, you've got to all know, you know, what you're doing at what time yeah. and, and give everybody the space that they need. Yeah, it's, imp it's important to have those boundaries because, I mean, people have always been talking about it quite a lot recently. You know, what's your advice? And it is quite... It's not it's not rocket science. <laughs> it's actually mega simple, isn't it? It's about those boundaries and rules in those tight spaces and giving people a bit of respect as well, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, um, you know, there's nothing worse than feeling out of control. And, and, and if you can take control over as many elements of your life as you can yeah. then that helps you to feel like you've you know you've got some stability and you've got some direction and so well, we would do this on the space station you know we would have an input into the schedule we'd be able to choose when we would do certain activities and it kind of empowers you to think you've got you've got some control over your your life in an otherwise really unpredictable situation yeah mega interesting however we're not going to jump the gun i don't want <laughs> i don't want to get to the space bit quite yet because obviously the way we go through this is it's sort of it's in order, sort of. I mean, I'm here as well, which means there's not a lot of order. But we try to do it in order, and that means going back to the beginning. What what were you like as a boy? Was was that was space something that you inspired um, you? It, it, it to a degree, yes, yeah, to a degree. As in, but to the same level, I think that most young boys and girls are inspired by space. They look up to the stars, and you know, you might have a few uh, Lego games or something that have got rockets and spaceships, and you put things on your on your wall. But I wasn't one of the the people, the children who kind of think that's it. You know, one day I'm going to space, and I'm going to channel all of my energy into that. Mm. Um, for me, I was I would watch the the Mir space station being built, watch the shuttle. Um, launches and and yeah. that found it fascinating but it was it was kind of detached it was something the americans and the russians did and we didn't do that in the uk we sat and watched it happen yeah. and we couldn't see there wasn't a pathway to follow so uh my passion became flying and i i think i was really fortunate to find that early on because you know lots of people struggle to find out what it is that they want to do mm -hmm. um until much later in life but i knew from early teenage years that flying was it um, and I was able to focus all my energies towards that. Although I did read in the beginning of your book, there was a little bit of a disaster. Oh, child, yeah, yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> it was hilarious because um, I was I was a dreadful pilot at radio controlled planes. I used to love <laughs> building them or flying them. Uh, um, and I don't think I ever kept one in the air for more than about five minutes. And I was terrified that this was a precursor to me being a, a dreadful pilot for real. Um <laughs> So I seemed to lack a lot of spatial awareness when I was trying to control an aircraft you know, up in the sky. But thankfully, when I got behind the controls myself, I found it a lot easier. Cool. So um, 
Where did you go to? You went. You were down in Chichester, is that right? Yes. Yeah. I grew up uh, in Chichester, Westbourne, a small village. Um, uh, yeah, and really ordinary childhood. You know, middle class family. Um, grew up in a small village. Uh, went to a state school. Um, and loved uh, cadets, actually. That's where I, you know, I, I kind of bounced around, couldn't find what it was I wanted to do as a sport yeah. or hobby, uh, you know, from all sorts of things. And then when I was 13, I was allowed to join the cadet force. And that was it. You know, I, I was sold. I thought, that this the is... Air cadets? It was the It was combined cadet force. Okay, yeah. And I, um, I went into the army section just because I felt more comfortable in the army section. But strangely enough, I love flying. So every weekend... I'd go to the Air Force you know, leader and just say, do you mind if I hop along oh, and right, jump yeah. in a glider or jump in a chipmunk? So I was trying to kind of getting the best of both worlds. So were you, when you're in the cadets then, obviously the combined cadets you, it involves everything, but is it quite accessible to get, get up in the air then? It's, if you're going down that route, it's not too bad. Yeah, um, obviously, obviously, you know, it depends on um, where you are and how easily accessible it is to get to an airfield. But there are lots of university air squadrons, and there's lots of air force organisations that will help out. And at the weekend, they'll try and give some gliding spots or uh, some spots in a light aircraft to get you up and flying. So you know, it's probably about two or three times a year we'd get the chance to jump oh. in an aircraft, which is brilliant. See, I always see, I always see it as something that's just so far out of reach. You know, the fact that because flying's deemed for people that aren't aeronautical by any, and I'm not, it seems like such a out of reach thing to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. As, as in, like, it, oh, it must cost loads of money. They must. Uh -huh. Why would they ever let kids or young young adults into planes that don't know how to fly? Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, yes, I mean, it is. I mean, to do it privately, it's expensive. Yeah. Uh, and you're, yes, you're absolutely right. You need to have, you know, the the resources to be able to do it. I think that's why the cadets is so good, because it gives you the opportunity to go and try it mm. to find out if it's something you like or not. Um, I loved it. And um, and I was very lucky that I went down the military route. So, um, you know, of course, it's all paid for, isn't it? When you're, when you're, when you're going to go and fly helicopters for the army. Um and I was lucky enough at 17 to get a flying scholarship from the Air Force, which was 30 hours in a Cessna 150. And I was off at Compton Abbas Airfield down in Dorset and yeah. we were flying those things around. So, I mean, I was I was flying before I had my driving license and that was just fantastic fun. That is that is mental, if I'm honest, to be fair. But um, so what, what uh, when did you actually then join the military? Was it? Did you do university? Or? I didn't. Um, I kind of. Uh, I, I didn't have good A level results. <laughs> I was, <laughs> which is, you know, surprised surprised me <laughs> as much as anybody else. <laughs> um, and I, I had a place. I'd wanted to go into the army air corps. I'd been to see them. I'd been on their familiarization visit, and um, they had offered me a place at Sandhurst. Um, but I was only 17 at the time, mm. and they said, look, you know, go out, do something, get some life experience, and come to us at, at 19 years old. Um, so I had that, you know, knowing that I was going off to, to Sandhurst, I kind of yeah. took my eye off the ball, really, to be honest, with the exams, uh, and scraped a CD and an E uh, at maths, physics, and chemistry, and then worked, went to work in a pub uh, to go and get some money to, um, to go on a trip to Alaska, which was what I wanted to do, to go yeah. and broaden my horizons. Um, uh, which was fantastic. I wouldn't change any of it for the world. Um, so I didn't. I didn't end up getting a degree until the grand old age of thirty-three, um, <laughs> when I finally went back to school and decided to polish up the maths. And I was working as a test pilot at that at that time. So you know, you needed to have um, higher academic yeah. levels. 
Um, so I think uh, when I go around and speak to school children and, and students today, I think it's not a bad message to say, look, you know, you can always catch up. You can always yeah, yeah. go back and revisit your education. Sometimes you're just not interested at that stage of the game, are you? Are you? Even though it's probably one of the most important things. Like I, I wasn't academic and now I'm sort of, I've, I'm not now either, but I like to think that I could probably polish up. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, um, absolutely. I think you're right. It's when you've got something to focus on. And for me, I mean, when I was uh, as a test pilot, focusing on the academics was just natural because I, I needed to know how stuff you know, worked, how yeah, did yeah. aircraft fly, what made them stable, what caused them to be unstable. And that was all maths. So I really had to knuckle down. I had to go to evening school, get a tutor and um, and say, look, you know, I need to get up to degree level mathematics in a short space of time. So I thankfully did. Why? um why did you choose like so obviously all three branches of the military the british the mod the british military british forces have pilots or aviators depending on which one you choose but what was why the sway towards the army it was it was a really uh, basic choice actually because um or a basic way of thinking i guess um i wanted to fly helicopters i can't give you an answer why over fast jets i just did for me i was passionate about helicopters loved what they did and the way they flew uh more so than fast jets and and the air force attitude was join the air force become a fast jet pilot if you don't make it you can fly heavy transport charlie 130 or you go helicopters um and i thought actually i want to join as a helicopter pilot i don't want to be a failed yeah yeah uh, and the Navy, I just didn't fancy spending so much time Fair at enough. sea on water. Uh, and the role of the Army Air Corps at the time, um, it was battlefield helicopters. And at the time, they had a bit of a, a rough nickname, Teeny Winnie Airways. They were flying Lynx and Gazelle. Yeah. Um, so they weren't too you know, um, potent or well that well-respected amongst the, the rest of the Army. But um, attack helicopter was coming. Yeah. And as I was going through my Army Air Corps selection... They were in the process of choosing whether it was going to be the Apache, the Bell Cobra, yeah. or the Roy Valk. Uh, and so I knew that the role of the Army Air Corps was about to get much more serious. And that really appealed to me. Yeah, I do. Yeah, because obviously the Army Air Corps did. Yeah, it was just Lynx, wasn't it? And Gazelle, which were sort of they were the reconnaissance aircraft, weren't they? That's, that's right. Them, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, I ended up being a Gazelle pilot for, for about four years. Um, which was a huge amount of fun. They're like a little sports car, the helicopter world. They're like the MG Midget, really. Weren't they one of the... Aren't they? Oh, no, it's a li- someone, I remember someone saying the Lynx was one of the fastest helicopters. Yeah, the Lynx set the world speed record. Um, uh, they stripped it out, and um, and they got that thing over 200 miles an hour, which is phenomenal. That's ridiculous. What year did you join? Uh, I joined in um, 91 at yeah. Santa Cruz, commissioned 92. Okay, so... The attack helicopters coming in, you had your sights set on flying those as a living, as a career. How did that go? How did, how was that journey in, in when you were in the Army Air Corps? You know, obviously they've got the, the stalwart helicopters that you've just mentioned, the Lynx and the Gazelle. I'm sure everyone wanted to then be an attack helicopter pilot. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, it took a while to get those that into service. So when I first um, got my wings, that was on Gazelle, and you know the attack helicopter was being delayed and being delayed. So I ended up, um, you know, flying uh, Gazelles a lot longer. And then, um, as they do, you know, as an officer in the Army Air Corps, you're pushed quite quickly up the command chain, go and be an adjutant ops officer, and you know, get the skills you need to compete to get promotion. And I was all about flying still, so. 
thankfully I was young enough to be able to say, look, I've got some time on my side. Can I go and be an instructor? And that would keep me in the cockpit. Yeah. Um, so I went off and, and became a helicopter instructor. And then on the back of that, got the posting out to America with the 1st Cavalry Division. Yeah. Um, and this was still before Apache had been introduced to the British Army, but I was going to be flying Apaches with the Americans. So I actually ended up, that was the first time I flew Apache, was over at Fort Rucker in Alabama, uh, yeah. Mother Rucker, as, as they love to call it. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and, and that was it. Never looked back. I was Apache for 10 years after that. So was that, do you think, was that deliberate by you or was it just the fact that you chose to do the instructor's job because you wanted to stay in the seat and then because of that, posting to the US, it, everything fell into place for you to then come back and still fly Apache or be I, in that. Yeah, no, I, I think I was really lucky. Everything seemed to fall into place because, of course, I then came back from um, America with, uh, you know, 500 hours Apache under my belt mm -hmm. and having uh, flown it for three years. And and we were just introducing Apache at that time. And uh, in fact, there were only about four people in, in the Army Air Corps who could fly them at that point. So I came back from America and and immediately joined this very small team of instructors who were told, you know, put together a course. Um, you need to train everybody, train the instructors first. And then and then we went up to Dishforth to do the sort of operational flying and design yeah. that course as well. Um, and it was just a wonderful time to be working uh, in the Army Air Corps at that point, you know, to have so much input into shaping how we were going to, you know, operate Apache yeah. and how we were going to design the tactics and develop the courses to do it. Is, yeah, it is a well-respected aircraft, and it's like, yeah, it's bailed us out of some <laughs> positions. But you hear a lot of stories, like, obviously I'm not a pilot, but you speak to people and they're like, oh, it's a really difficult airframe to fly. Is it? Is it difficult? Because there's a lot going on, isn't there? And you hear about the fact that you've got one, you know, I don't know whether yeah. this is true, but you hear about the fact that one eye's got to be doing one thing while another eye's doing the other and so on and so forth. Is, yeah. it, is it like that? Um, it, it, it is a bit, and there are, some, there are some bits that take a bit of getting used to, but actually it's a beautiful aircraft to fly. I think, yeah. um, you know, they did such a good job designing it. Um, I've flown some aircraft you get into and, you know, everything's everywhere. It's a mess and you can tell it hasn't been, hasn't had much pilot input in the design process the apache you sit in and you think this has been designed by pilots it's just beautiful yeah um and uh in terms of the way it flies as well really responsive really maneuverable um and so for as a from a flying machine it's fantastic you can loop it you can roll it um it's got bags of performance masses of power but there is a lot going on. You've got, you yeah. know, three different weapon systems. You've got radar. You've got infrared camera. You've got uh, information coming at you at all different angles. So you've got to be somebody who can prioritize and who can kind of sort uh, out what's going on and keep on top of it. So you definitely think that the that we picked the right helicopter to have as our attack helicopter? Yeah, without a doubt, we picked the right helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Good to hear. <laughs> One of the good decisions. <laughs> yeah. Were you best positioned to suddenly start looking at a, your career transitioning into space exploration? Whatever. I don't know what you actually what the official word is, but obviously you'd been um, a, a pilot instructor. You, instructor, sorry. You'd you'd sort of pioneered the, you know, the UK's use of the Apache, and then do you, is a next step test pilot. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I. Um, uh, after I'd been doing the Apache instructor's role and we'd got the courses up and running, I, I'd come back from America wanting to be a test pilot. And so the British Army had said, sure, but you're going to, obviously, at the moment, we need you to do these these courses to get the yeah. Apache into service. 
and then um, I went to Boscombe Down and, and and passed the test pilot selection course and and did that course for a year. And again, it was it was it was great actually because it was I I qualified as an Apache test pilot or as a test pilot just when the Apaches were going to Afghanistan. The yeah. first squadron was going out there. So it was a really exciting time. That first year uh, as a test pilot, we we made 20 modifications to the aircraft. We were wow. going over to Arizona to test them in the mountains, um, putting new fuel tanks on the side. We were putting new ammunition uh, uh, on board and, and you know, doing all of these urgent operational requirements. So, you know, when you when you're working under the UORs, as they call them, yeah. you, you the decision making process is so fast and um, you're given so much freedom to be able to bring these into service. So that was really fantastic time to be working as a test pilot. Yeah, a UOR is an urgent operational requirement, if I'm right in vision. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And it basically gets things through a bit quicker because things yeah. are needed yeah. at the drop of a hat. Test pilot ticked off in the bag. When when did you start? When did it? When was it up on your radar? So space came on the radar. It started when I was a test pilot because just just to get through the course, we have modules on space. We right. we learn about you know going beyond Mach five and and how things operate at those kind of speeds, hypersonics, and uh, I mean we don't go into orbital dynamics or anything, but you start looking at the technology that the space agencies use just yeah. from an interest point of view. Um, so it was kind of coming coming on my radar then, um, and uh, in two thousand and eight. <laughs> The, the European Space Agency just put out an online advert said we're we're selecting a new bunch of astronauts and anybody in uh, any of the member states of the European Space Agency can apply uh, which was uh, it took everybody by surprise really first that it just came out as an online application yeah, yeah, form. Yeah. Uh, and secondly that the UK was allowed to take part because up until that point um, the UK hadn't joined uh, the human spaceflight program. Yeah. And so, you know, France would select their astronauts, Germany would select theirs and Italy theirs, and then they would all go into the European Space Agency and, and, and become astronauts. Um, and the UK, because we weren't part of the program, we were never allowed to do that. So in 2008, when ESA opened the doors up to everybody, it yeah. was, you know, we had um, you know, thousands of people in the UK apply. From all military no, a, a wide variety of backgrounds. I mean, there was a fair fair sprinkling of military test pilots who applied, but there were doctors, dentists, scientists, you know, um, school teachers, everybody, anyone who wanted to. <laughs> it's it's mad. I love I love it. I'm I'm a massive like I love space. I don't know anything about it. I love it. Um, but I'm a big fan. There's a film called The Right Stuff. Have you seen it many times? Right, yeah, okay. I love it. I love it. So I love that, and it's obviously that's about the. The, the final sort of selection process when NASA was selecting, you know, people to go into space. What, 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 what was it? It's like a casting, I suppose, for a TV show or something where there's all these people that, that the experts have got to whittle down. How, yeah. you know, what, was it first just an online application and then that got whittled down and then you meet someone and then it, you're into the interview? It is, process? yeah. I mean, it's a year-long process and you're right, they just whittle it down at every stage. And the application form was really important, actually, to because that's when it went from over 8,000 to just 1,000. So, right. uh, you know, they wanted to make sure you had the right qualifications. Um uh, and you had to pass a class two aviation medical just to show that you had basic levels of medical health. Yeah. Um, and then it, they did a really tough testing day where they it was just in front of computers all day long and it was the hard skills. They were looking at concentration, memory retention, spatial awareness, uh, a bit of maths and, and engineering in there. 
And, and that was where they just wanted to grill you and find out, you know, can you do certain tasks? Yeah. Um, uh, and after that, it was all about soft skills, really. It was all about the communication, teamwork, um, psychological profiling, make sure, making sure you're the right kind of character and personality um, for, the, for the job. And then, as you you know, you mentioned the right stuff. You've got the the <laughs> ritual medical week to go through, yeah. uh, which is is it like that? Oh, is awful. it like that? It's, it's dreadful. Film? It's invasive, uh, <laughs> and it's there's no st stone left unturned, and you just leave your dignity at the door for the whole week. Um, you spend most of that week either naked or having a needle <laughs> needle stuck in you somewhere. Um, yeah, but uh, the the whole point of that is to try and make sure that you're a, a low risk from a medical point of view. You're somebody yeah. who's you know hopefully not going to have a problem up in space because ultimately there are only a few of you and if one of you've got a problem then that's you're in a lot of trouble yeah absolutely and um and it, and you know nobody they're, they're not going to bring you back from the space station unless they absolutely have to yeah. so they don't you know they want to make sure you're it's an expensive commute no <laughs> <doubt>. <laughs> yeah yeah if anyone if like if anyone's not seen it you should go and watch you should watch the right stuff it's a long film it's about three hours long but there is the bit where they're actually processing them and the actors are actually quite funny in it they they do a good job and it is very i'm sure it's moved on i'm sure it's quite archaic now to watch but it's quite a funny bit that that selection process when did you know that you were going to be the one uh, how, how long so did that obviously yeah the selection process takes a year um, um i i when i got the phone call i was expecting it to be the rejection call because uh we had had the last interview with the boss himself the director general had been three weeks earlier how many how many and were left at this stage there were so 10 of us had gone through to that final interview did you all become mates was it all quite close um, we know we didn't we didn't know each other really oh. or we weren't supposed to so they were they Issa got very secretive towards the end of the selection process and they didn't want any of us talking to each other so um uh, and uh, I'd only met two of them before throughout the selection process. The others, I had no idea. Um, and so I'd gone along. I'd had this interview. I'd done my best. But I knew politics was, was at play as well because the UK still wasn't contributing to the programme. Yeah. So I was thinking, well, are they really going to take a British astronaut when we're not paying into the programme? Um, and there were Germans, there were French, there were Italians in that final 10. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, it had been three weeks since this interview with the boss, and I'd seen on the website that they were uh, going to announce the new astronauts on Wednesday morning in Paris, and this was Monday afternoon. Oh. So I, I was like, oh, well, congratulations to those who made it. You know, it's not me. And then Monday night, about 7 o'clock, the phone rang, and it was a Paris phone number. So I thought, oh, at least they're bringing me up to tell me, sorry, you didn't make it. Yeah. And uh, it was the director general's number two. And he said, would you like to join the astronaut corps? Uh, so no I was pretty shocked at that point. Um, so is he, is he a, are they French, are they? Uh, yes, yeah. Well, they're, they're mixed. He was, the director general was French at the time. Was there a big hoo-ha about it politically, just because it, the Brits don't, weren't involved with yeah, take it, it was, they weren't involved financially they weren't funding it is that right or? that's right we were we were funding other programs in ESA we were yeah. we we're like the the UK was the fourth largest funder of ESA yeah but we weren't funding any human spaceflight programs right. um and so it was a, a real shock um and uh, yeah I think even you know Jonathan Amos ended up going to the press conference for the BBC and asking that first question and his first question was why why have you picked a Brit <laughs> you know? and I think we were all asking the same question um, so it was a massive surprise when, when I got that phone call. What was call. that like? Oh, it was, it was incredible because I'd kind of, um, I was leaving the army at the, anyway and, um, I'd, uh, and I'd 
you know, had a job with Westlands Helicopters as a test pilot. So I was at the time looking to move down to Yeovil yeah. and thinking about setting up life there. And um, and Rebecca was uh, pregnant with our first child. And so, um, you know, we were kind of starting to think that's how our life was going to go. Yeah. And then suddenly it was a case of, hang on, here comes this bowling ball, yeah. up sticks, move to Germany, no idea what this career is going to bring with it um, in terms of travel where we'd live um, no guarantee of a mission to space either it was a real you know gamble you're just yeah. kind of rolling the dice and hoping that at some point it will pay off so you got you you obviously got that phone call to join that the core i suppose what was it called again uh, yeah the uh, european astronaut Corps. european astronaut Corps. okay um what's next what comes next after that because obviously you've you've proven that you're you're right to potentially go to space but then mm. i take it the next bit's fine tuning is that right yeah the next bit is you know let's get you trained up uh, to a, a basic level of training and um all astronauts whether you're from nasa from japan canada russia you all have to go through a basic training course of some sort yeah. and this was also the first year that the european space agency had, were going to run their own basic training so we all moved over to Cologne um, and settled down there, found a house to rent and started, you know, day one back to school kind of thing in the classroom uh, and met up with my five other colleagues who'd been selected. Yeah. And um, yeah, the first three months was just really back to, you know, back to the academics and they wanted to get everybody up to the same standard in a whole different a plethora of different topics. And we had to start learning Russian. Where were the other four from? Or is it four we, or five? We, yeah, it was five. So we had two Italians, Luca and Samantha. Um, and had a German, uh, Alex Gerst, a French, Thomas Pesquet, and a Danish, Andreas Mogensen. What, as in what sort of topics, as in an example, a couple of topics? Um, I mean, uh, solar physics, for example, okay. you know, they, they appreciate, I mean, I was there with Andy Mogensen. He was, a, he'd worked for Surrey Satellites and, uh, right. you know, a navigation system. So he knew everything about this. But of course, then, you know, they, they of course, they don't assume that everybody's going to know about solar yeah. physics. So you do that, you do a bit of biology so that you can understand some of the science experiments that's going to come your way. Um, but then it was interesting. There was some stuff thrown in there um, about IT. They said, OK, let's talk to you about, you know, Internet uh, protocols, modems, stripped down computers, because if it breaks on the space station, you're the one, you know, repairing yeah, yeah. it. So um, <laughs> and then there was a, a day of plumbing skills. <laughs> so you went from this bizarre mix of uh, academics to practical skills. Do you think you were like taught at diff to different levels on each different skill, as in like you know, like your solar physics, was that was that quite high level or? No, no I think the, these were just to give you an understanding right, because okay. um, of, of everything that was going on. Um, but when it came to things like orbital dynamics, that was to a much higher level because right. you were obviously going to go off and fly a spacecraft and you needed to know how things work up there right. in orbit. And um, and it's it's not intuitive. It's not even intuitive to, for pilots, you know, things right. in space. I was going to ask how does it work, but we haven't got yeah. time, don't worry about it. And then obviously you're doing that, but also you've got to learn Russian. Mm, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's probably one of the most confusing language. I mean, apart, apart from obviously English, which I haven't even grasped either, but Russian always, it, the, do, at what level do you, have, do you have to be able to read it? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. You have to be able to read it uh, and speak it and understand. It. You don't have to write it, um, although we ended up, we did end up writing quite a bit. But yeah, all of our manuals uh, in the spacecraft are all in Russian, so you have to be able to read them all. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, I had lots of scribbled notes in English next to it because I was just thinking to myself, if something goes wrong in this spacecraft, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and I suddenly lose my Russian language skills, I need to have it written down in English as well. So that's in Cologne. And obviously the Russian is for a reason. Why do you learn Russian? Uh, Ever since the shuttle retired in 2011, we'd been flying with the Russians. They had been the only people taking crews to and from the space station. So uh, you had to learn um, Russian to, you know, to learn about the Soyuz spacecraft and also the Russian segment of the space station. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone in, um, as we call it, the U.S. segment, were going to be English speaking. So the Japanese, um, obviously Canadians and, and Americans speaking English, and, the, and any Europeans would all speak English. Yeah. But the Russians would still be speaking Russian. Uh, and although their English tended to be very good, mm-hmm. it was just, you know, a nice thing to do anyway, to be able to socialize with them and to be able to converse you know, socially on the space station. I take it you had to go to Russia. Yeah, I spent many years in Russia, really, over, over that six years of training between um, being selected and actually flying to space. Uh, many trips to Star City, which is um, yeah. where they've been training uh, cosmonauts since the days of Yuri Gagarin. And it's a few miles outside of Moscow. Um, we would go there and um, learn about you know, the spacecraft, sit in the simulators, learn how to fly them, um, uh, and learn all about the Russian segment of the space station. We did our winter survival training in Russia as well. Um, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, but would you say at the moment the Russians are probably the experts in getting into space? Well, they've been doing it for you know successfully for, for many many years, obviously, like like yeah. the Americans. And at the time, the you know the Soyuz spacecraft is is such a workhorse. It's it's reliable. It's um, you know relatively uh, easy to produce, and um, it's it's a relatively basic rocket and a basic space spacecraft. You know, yeah. there's, there's not many bells and whistles on it. it. If they haven't had to change anything, they haven't. Yeah. Um, so they're very very good at getting people safely into space and, and getting them back down again. Um, and there was this big gap in America when the shuttle was retired. Mm-hmm. But now the U.S. is picking back up again. We've got SpaceX, uh, a yeah. private company, launching cargo, launching crews now this year. We've just seen the first crews um, going up to the space yeah. station on the SpaceX. And next year, Boeing will have their commercial spacecraft that will go. So we're now seeing the, the U.S. pick back up with yeah. much more advanced technology, actually, than the Soyuz. You know, this is uh, we've all seen Elon Musk and SpaceX coming back down to land. So he's reusing these rockets up to 100 times. And, bringing the cost of access to space down. So that's really exciting and interesting. Spending a lot of time, six years you spent in that sort of training process or, the, you know, the, the whole learning to go to space. When did when did you actually find out that you were going to be selected to spend time on the, on the ISS? Um, I found out in 2013. And um, I'll never forget the day because uh, there was a lot of, uh, again, politics leading up to that point. Um, ESA had bought, had purchased a short duration mission um, on the Soyuz to, uh, it was going to be a 12 day mission, um, kind of a taxi ride as we would nickname them, mm-hmm. um, up and back. Uh, and everyone else was, normally we were trained for six month missions, that's what we were all expecting. So we were a bit surprised that they had gone ahead with this short duration mission and um, obviously one European astronaut was going to get it and I was thinking to myself well you know <laughs> at the time still the UK had you know uh, had not subscribed and I thought well I, I know which direction this is coming uh, and it was kind of like I was thinking this is the introductory offer to the UK you know we've yeah. got a short duration mission you know subscribe to the program and your British astronaut will get to fly um, and sure enough the UK had subscribed 
uh, at the, the, the last ministerial. So we were finally on board. So I got this phone call and um, it's actually been a rare morning where I'd been back to the Army Air Corps and uh, had a, a patchy sortie with my mates. And I only did that a couple of times when I was working with ESA just to yeah. keep the proficiency going. So I'd had a brilliant morning flying Apaches and then um, came back, had this phone call thinking, okay, this is going to be, yep, you've got the short duration mission and, and was told, no, you've got the, the long duration, you're going for six months. So best day of my life, without a doubt. That is, I wonder, yeah, I don't even know what to say because it's like, like you're you're actually going to go into space and live on the space station, sort of. It was just, it was a huge relief because you know we'd invested so much, me personally, but also as a family. And, yeah. Um. You know, I'd closed the door effectively on my test pilot career, which had been my passion since yeah. being a boy. So, um, it was a, you know, I knew I was. I was taking a big chance and I knew that there was a, you know, probably a 50, 50 that it wouldn't pay off and I might never get to fly to space. So for me, getting that phone call was just, um, it was, it was more emotional and, and more relief than getting the phone call to say that you've been selected as an astronaut, because that was the moment I thought, yes, you know, You're actually gonna get to do I'm that. getting a chance now yeah. to go. I just need to stay fit and healthy and hope nothing goes wrong. Cause I suppose there's a lot of people that get that call to say, right, you're going to become you know, we're going to teach you to become an astronaut, but there's still a lot of people, I suppose, that don't get the opportunity to actually do it. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we try and fly everybody who's selected. You know, we try and get them through the, the system, but there are astronauts who are selected who never end up getting a mission for one reason or another. So you're aware that there's that risk, there's that chance. How long was it from that call then? So um, we go in, we, we're sort of moving through this by phone calls <laughs> yeah. until until the until the day. I don't want to talk about the launch yet. How, yeah. Until that day. Well, that, that, that's like a conveyor belt that starts then. It's a two and a half year. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Process of training. It's a long process. It's a long it? process. A long, long process. So, um, and that I mean, it it would be shorter for a second mission. But when you're a rookie astronaut, it's your first mission. You've got a lot to do. You know, um, you've you've got to really refine those Soyuz spacecraft skills. You've got to learn how to spacewalk um, in the swimming pool and and put on the suit and go and do all those that training. You've got to learn about all the science experiments you're going to be doing um, uh, and learn in huge detail about every aspect of the space station in case any of it breaks yeah. and so uh, and on top of that all of those other skills um you know medical training dentistry even um you know uh, it's en endless so this conveyor belt starts but at least you're on it you know uh, and you're thinking okay we're, we're really now working towards a date i've got a date in the diary when it's going to see me sitting on top of a rocket what was that date 
Well, at the time, that was mid-November, about the 14th of November. Right. Uh, ended up slipping a bit. I ended up launching on the 15th of December. Right. Um, was that what was that due to? Was that weather? Or? No, we had uh, in the year before I launched, we had a number of problems. We had um, a Cygnus spacecraft, a cargo spacecraft, blew up on the launch pad. Yeah. And a few months after that, a SpaceX cargo vehicle blew up on its way to the space station, and a Progress um, went out of control. It got launched into orbit, but it didn't go successfully. So the Progress ended up re-entering the atmosphere, burning up. Um, being destroyed and the problem about that one was that it, the Soyuz rocket that carried that cargo vehicle was the same rocket that the crew fly on right. so that delayed everything because they said okay we need to really understand this problem why has that failed okay. um, so that pushed everything back a bit so the day comes out I mean what was it like we, there must have been anxiety Yes, yeah, there is. I mean, it's a it's a big day, but honestly, by that point, you'll you'll probably appreciate now. And having told those stories, by that point, you're just thinking, I just want to go. You know, <laughs> yeah. I just need yeah, to get yeah. to space now. Come on. Um, so it's yeah, you you've seen things go wrong. You know that there's a risk. You know things might go wrong. Launch, but but it's that's not the overriding emotion. You know, you put that to one side. You've done everything you can. You've done yeah. all the training. You know what to do if something yeah. goes wrong. Um, so launch day is a case of just saying goodbye to friends and family and then that's it you know your focus mental focus How emotional was that uh, that was that was hugely emotional yeah um and uh and it's very public as well you know it's, it's just at the time when you want to have a few private moments yeah. um the cameras are on you everybody's watching you know my kids were seven and four at the time so they're not really fully understanding right. exactly what's going on and, and you know what does six months in space mean um, and uh, you're just trying to say your goodbyes to them, um, and uh, and that's really tough, really really hard. While the world is watching. While the world's watching, yeah, really hard to do. What was the? Uh, come on, then talk about the launch. I like this is the bit I'm all excited yeah. about. <laughs> what what is it like? What's the feeling? The exhilaration? The, the noise? The yeah, launch vibration. launch is incredible, and and you know, um, actually, once once I'd said those goodbyes, it was it was such a relief again to be able to just focus mentally, focus and switch onto what mm. like lay ahead. And so, the first thing about launch is you know, when you're taking the elevator ride up the rocket, and and you've seen this in the factory a few a couple of weeks before. But it's like nothing nothing else because now it's full of cryogenic fuel. And so all the moisture in the air is frozen on the outside of the rocket. So the rocket's white, um, looks pure white just because of frosting. And it's like a living, breathing animal. It's uh, cryogenic fuel is boiling off. There's steam everywhere. So you approach this rocket, you know, with lights through the fog and, and <laughs> take this ride up there. Is it quite a volatile um, bit of a kit? Yeah, I mean, it's 300 tonnes of, of explosives, effectively. <laughs> you know, you're sitting on, on something that is di designed by design to be as explosive as possible when you mix that kerosene and liquid oxygen together. Um, and uh, and then you you, know, you take the ride up and, and you crawl in through this in tiny, tiny space, strap yourself in. And then you've got a couple of hours just going through your checks and drills. Just sat there. Just sat there, yes. Uh I mean, we're trying to focus on... No you know, cups of tea beforehand, yeah. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just trying to focus on, you know, everything that you need to do, making sure it's all working. But um, it's, it's a long time to just be sat there, you know, wishing you could just hurry up and get on with it. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but the, that moment of, of launch is incredible because th- there's not actually a countdown. Um, just when you, you know, everyone really thinks there's a big old Ugh. 1098 in the, in the rocket. Uh, but instead, you've got your Russian instructor uh, and he's talking to you. So it's nice. It's the same voice you've heard all through training. And, and he's basically talking to you about the engine startup. So, um, you know, you're listening to him saying, OK, you know, fuel pressure is good. Pumps are up and running. Um, engines are igniting. You're at intermediate thrust. We're now ramping up full thrust and this is what's given us the countdown yeah, you know, yeah. we, we know that when he says full thrust we've got five seconds before leaving the, the pad um uh, and and the noise are just unbelievable even though we're you know we're wearing a communications cap we've got a spacesuit on we've got a helmet closed mm-hmm. and even through all that you know the noise is unbelievable um, and, and when it lifts off the pad you just feel this building acceleration lots and lots of vibration um and I, in in some respects, I was glad I was in this you know this Russian built thing because they build they over engineer everything yeah. you know it's like their aircraft they're built like tanks yeah. because the level of vibration you'd swear the thing was going to you know rock itself to pieces and, and shatter itself but um, yeah and then the acceleration just builds up and up and up uh, and it comes in uh, in stages because the first stage gets you up to about eighty kilometers altitude. How, how many stages are there? Three stages. Three stages, right, okay. Yeah, and so the G-force builds up and up and up. As you're burning off the fuel, you're accelerating. And then the first stage jettisons, they're the four um, liquid booster rockets. And then there's a massive drop-off in acceleration as they they disappear. It feels like you're tumbling forward in the spacecraft as you get that drop of acceleration. And you're kind of thinking, is is everything okay? Is is it all normal? Uh, And then the second stage picks up. And then the third stage actually is probably the most exciting because by this point you're in space. Right. You, you've made it you know, 150 kilometers up there already. Yeah. Um, and the, the spacecraft's horizontal. The first two stages get you vertical yeah. and then, then you're horizontal. And that's all about the speed. Because if the, if the rocket fails at that point, you'll simply just fall back down to Earth on a kind of uh, ballistic So is this trajectory. last bit to get you... This last get bit you is get past you... Past the point of... And pulled back. Absolutely, yeah. Right. So, I mean, in orbit, uh, you're constantly falling in orbit around the Earth, but the whole point is that you go so fast that you fall at exactly the same rate of curvature of the Earth. So as you fall, you're constantly falling, but you're always missing the Earth. But that's <laughs> 25 times the speed of sound. That's the speed you have to get to to, to be able to fall at that correct rate. So, so that's so what that third stage is to get you to. That third stage is getting you to 25 times the speed of sound, and it's 17,000 miles an hour, well, more than that, 17,000 miles. But when you're up there, do you can you feel the sensation of going that quick? Yes, yeah. (laughs) I had no idea you would, um, because you know the first stage is launch. Yeah, they are fun. It's all power. It's vibration. It's noise, and 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 that is brilliant. That's brilliant fun. But honestly, the third stage was mind blowing. I mean, there was there was a point there where I just felt a little bit uncomfortable. It's yeah. almost like, okay, stop the ride now. I want to get <laughs> off. You 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 are you're so aware that you're doing something crazy. You're doing something that's mind blowing. This, this goes on for eight minutes and forty eight seconds, and of it's just ex- of just acceleration, 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 acceleration. Same rate as a Formula One car the entire the sound time. Of it. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. It's a wild ride. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, but you are, yeah, that there is a point there when you just think this is OK. I didn't realize it was going to be quite this extreme. And is it being flown or is it predominantly no. on auto? It's on is auto. Everything's yeah, everything's yeah. automatic. If something goes wrong, we'll take, you know, try and take kind of manual control. There's not really any control in a rocket. You know, it's a case of just 
trying to manually control your re-entry back to earth yeah. if something goes wrong um but no pretty much once you light the blue touch paper it it's all does it itself so then you, you've you've it's accelerated you to the point where you are essentially falling at the right speed not to hit earth mm. that's that's yeah. what i now take as being in the orbit is yeah yeah so does that mean you then detach from that third stage Yes, so that's when the third stage, the engine cuts out, and that's a massive jolt because at that point you're almost at the highest acceleration. You're approaching kind of four and a half, five g, and then it goes to zero g in a fraction of a second, and and that's the point where everything just goes really quiet, um, and uh, and you separate from that stage, and that's when you know you've you've made it. So you've separated from that stage, but you're still essentially you're still moving quite quickly. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, because you, uh, uh, you're now up in space, there is no air resistance, uh, there's no friction, there's nothing to slow you down. So um, you will stay at that speed until uh, for eternity, you know, until some until some other force acts on you. So, so you're not you're not actually getting thrusted towards that speed. No, you're, you are now. You're just, now at that speed. Happens. That's what happens. That's what's really weird. There's the weird thing then is to know you're going that fast. But you're floating. Everything's quiet. Everything feels really graceful and serene. And um, and there's no engine. Uh, there's no noise from any. There's no vibration. There's nothing. You know, nothing happening. You're just tranquil. You're tranquil at, at twenty five times the speed of sound. <laughs> so um, next bit is obviously docking with the ISS. Mm. How was that? I mean, yeah, it didn't I mean, go well. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, I, I've just, I I've just been yeah saying about how fantastically reliable Russian hardware is, but um, it, it, yeah, we had a, a thruster sensor failure as we were docking, so the automatic system failed and backed us back out into space. And Yuri, Russian commander, had to take manual control, which isn't that unusual. It does happen every now and again, and and a manual docking normally isn't um, you know too uh, too adventurous, but. Uh, on this occasion, the the sun, we were going from day to night, and so the sun was really low on the horizon, and the space station just turned into a, a big mirror, reflecting all this sunlight straight yeah. into the optic. So Yuri was coming in, and he suddenly couldn't see anything, couldn't see what was happening. Um, and at the same time, uh, our computer screen went down. Different failure, just happened to yeah. co you know, coincide at that moment. So we were completely blind in the aircraft, in the spacecraft, rather, and Yuri had to uh, kind of recognize that and, and back away. Uh, and subsequently, having watched that on the video, um, I mean, we came very close to a collision. We were yawed off. We were drifting back down the space station towards the solar panels. And, you know, it was a real, a real uh, nervous moment in the spacecraft. And thankfully, Yuri, you know, backed it out, got control, and then brought it back in for a, a textbook docking. So we, we got there eventually. And so, and there you are. You're yeah. home for the next six months. Yeah. Uh, what's it like? It's it's, it's amazing because I mean, when you get on board, the 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 first feeling is just excitement to see your mates. You know, yeah. you know, here's three crewmates who you last saw nearly a year ago, um, and you're joining up in space. So um, it's a bit of a party atmosphere as you <laughs> you kind of get on board and say hello. Uh, and it's like a home from home, and everything feels so familiar because you've trained in these yeah. mock-ups. Um, and uh, and yet you're floating, and, it, and it's it's you know that's that's the weird thing is being in weightlessness um, uh, the whole time. Yeah, yeah. So you're just the course, whole time, yeah. and uh, uh, and we had to then go through and do a big press conference, and that was all in a, a bit of a hurry. 
So it wasn't until after that that we got a few moments to just relax, have some food, have a drink, and then go to the cupola window, which is where you look down on Earth. Yeah. And that was that was unbelievable. You know, that's the moment where you kind of think, wow. See, I think I like reading. I like I love looking at maps. I mean, I'll, I'll go on to me. I'll just look at them. <laughs> and to be able to, like, be up there at... How far up are we? 400 kilometres. 400 kilometres and being able to look at things and trying to find things that you recognise mm. in weather systems and that. It must be quite almost mesmerising. It is really mesmerising. And the funny thing is, you know, you get so much better at it after six months. Especially when you first get up, you're like, oh, you know, there's the UK, there's Northern Europe. And you're looking really big picture. Yeah. Um, and then your eye really gets kind of, tuned in to to where you are and you're able to identify different countries different features different really? rivers mountain ranges um volcanoes that might be erupting um uh yeah and, and then you want to start oh, i want to find everest you know i want to see the pyramids yeah. today the great wall of china um so you icebergs can you see yeah yeah i i actually photographed an iceberg one day we we just passed the the falklands i got a, a, a shot of antarctica which was great and i just spotted this iceberg all by itself in the South Atlantic, took a photo. And then uh, about two months later, um, we were passing, you know, just coming up to the, the southern tip of South Africa. Yeah. And I spotted this iceberg, and it was exactly the same one. Uh, having drifted, you know, a few thousand kilometres, I took a photo of it again, sent it back down. And I said, you know, just ch would you check? But it see, I think this is the same iceberg I <laughs> photographed a couple of months ago. And sure enough, it was. The reason I said iceberg, because I read this morning that there's uh, the world's biggest icebergs cutting around the south somewhere. Yeah, south, I mean, it's it's, it's it's beautiful to see from space, but obviously it, it paints a fairly you yeah, know, depressing a, picture a, a of why we're seeing so many, so much more ice out there. What um the routine on there? Were you busy every day for six months? I suppose I mean what yeah, else are you, you, do? you are. Uh, I mean, there's very varying degrees. They they do try and drop the tempo a bit at the weekends, um, but <laughs> you know we try and keep a Monday to Friday routine going. Again, it's all part of this you know yeah. psychology of, of of keeping good morale and and um, but you know you'll as you know yourself when you're in an operational environment like that you can't be a hundred and ten percent the entire time. You have to have moments where you just drop the tempo, recharge a bit. So, um, but often um, if a cargo vehicle comes up, for example, there's that's three and a half tons that just needs unpacking and then repacking. And that's not on the schedule. That's all okay. kind of, you know, you do that in your free time, boys. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's busy. What sort of things were you tasked to do up there? Mainly um, science. So the science program is constantly rotating. So it's not it's not like we train for specific science experiments. We train to operate the space station as a laboratory. So, uh, you know, we'll learn, OK, this is the bio lab. This yeah. is the flu fluid physics lab. This is the material science lab and we can operate. And uh, so the experiments come up, we uh, install them, we run them, and we send the results back down. So we're just doing lots and lots of science, science research. Um, and then we're also maintaining the space station. You know, it's a complex old place. It's a, we're trying to get to a 100% closed life system. So we're trying to recycle all of our water. We're up to about 90% at the moment. We're trying to get better um, sustainability with solar energy and, and things. So we're constantly repairing that kind of thing. And we're... Um, bringing new technologies onto the space station. There might be spacewalks going on uh, every now and again, cargo vehicle arriving, departing, yeah. uh, crew changeovers. So it's very busy, busy place all around the science program. It, is it quite a flimsy bit of kit? Like yeah, It the, always looks a bit, you know, when you watch it on films or yeah. on TV, it looks like that 
any slight touch would yeah. break like solar panels or well that is interesting you say that because it is i mean it's built for space it's not built for earth so um you know that that space station you know would never exist here on earth it would just collapse um right. so the joints are only just strong enough to hold it together you know for space um and um interestingly they, they've got accelerometers all around the space station and at one point they they were really getting concerned because they noticed some really bad uh, vibration levels and, and this bending stresses the space station was kind of bending and going beyond what it was designed to tolerate and they couldn't work out why the space station would be doing this and after a period of, of about a couple of months they finally realized it was one of the russians who was in his crew quarter at the very end of the space station and when he was ringing you know friends and family in the evenings he just liked to bounce gently up and down there's something to do he had the bungees over his feet and he was bouncing at the like the sensation. resonating frequency of the space station the space station was <laughs> you know what it was bending <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> took them ages to work out what it was and and so he stopped bouncing after that and the problem <laughs> went away <laughs> everyone's going out of their minds back on planet earth like, yeah. what the hell is going on um the spacewalk then we move on uh it, it's got to be scary isn't it because so essentially you could disappear yeah, it is. It is scary, and you're right. That's the main the problem. And I, th I think to, you know the, the problem is that um, we mentioned kind of launch and reentry is the same. If something goes wrong, it's probably not your fault, and it's probably nothing you can do about it. It's you know the rocket's on this automatic yeah. trajectory, and it's probably going to be catastrophic and over with before you know it. On a spacewalk, um, if something goes wrong, it's probably your fault. It's the scope for human error is huge. You know, you're out there and you just cannot make a mistake. You cannot forget to tether yourself um, or to tether a tool or a toolbox or a piece of equipment. So you just got to for you know six hours. You've got to be absolutely on on your game. So you leave. You leave the. There's an airlock. I take it. You leave that. You've got your tether. How long is it? Uh, it's about eighty five feet. So we we carry two or three of them depending how far we need to go. And you've got strong points all over the station itself. Yeah, you, you've got handrails over the space station. So your your um, the the tether gives you the freedom to just move quite quickly. You yeah. know, using these handrails. Um, so if you do fall off, that's kind of your last line you of defense. You know, in, yeah. it's like a fishing reel. You can try and haul yourself back and hopefully not do too much damage on the way. Um, but yeah, you don't, you don't really don't want to fall off the no. space station and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, what, so what was your task on your, how many did you do? Just the one. Did the one. Yeah. And what was, what did you, how long we, was it for and what did you do? It, we, we went out to repair a solar panel, um, at the very furthest edge. It was the, the one of the, the furthest away solar panels. Um, it was supposed to be about seven hours, the spacewalk. Um, but we got out there, we, We'd repaired the solar panel, um, no problems at all. So that, you know, we got that done first of all, which was great. And we even got the message back from Mission Control. It's all been successful and everything. And we got on with the, the subsequent tasks. We were doing lots of rewiring, um, running cables the length of the space station, um, uh, which is really challenging, you know, because in a spacesuit, it all looks very graceful, but actually you're working really hard inside, yeah. you know, the pressurized suits, hard to bend fingers and bend, bend elbows and things. Um, and then it, uh, Tim Copra called up at some point and said, you know, I've got some water coming into my helmet. There's about a golf ball size globule of water and um, which is not, you know, in itself hugely dangerous. But a few years prior to that, Luca Parmitano, my Italian classmate, mm. he had been in the same situation and um, 
Uh, he said, you know, I've got water coming in and mission control thought it must be coming from your drink bag. Just drink your drink bag and it'll stop leaking. Yeah. And he did. And it wasn't. It was more water coming in. And he ended up with a litre and a half worth of water. Um, and something had broken that nobody thought could possibly break. And um, it was the water from the cooling system, which there is a lot of water, yeah. was being injected into the ventilation system. Uh, and actually ended up being a kind of near drowning incident and um, closest we've come to losing a crew member on the space station. So so when Tim Copra called up, you know, we knew, OK, it could be the same problem. We need to get him back in a, right. in a hurry. Uh, so we had to abort the spacewalk at that point and uh, start getting him inside. On those spacewalks, do you um, do you f is there any sort of like feelings um like vertigo or a sense of where you are you know if i know you're probably yeah. really busy so you're like focused but was there ever a time when you had an opportunity just to look around and be like wow yeah oh yeah i mean when we got out to do the solar panel um we were 10 minutes ahead of schedule and uh tim and i tried to get out there as quick as we could to get set up um but the the bit that had broken was like a circuit breaker and so nothing was controlling the flow of electricity and until the sun went down so the only way we could get to work was literally to wait till we were in darkness yeah. and know it was safe to go and touch these components so mission control said just you know hang out 10 minutes until the sunset and um you know enjoy the view <laughs> so we we just clipped on and pushed ourselves away on these short tethers and just floated there in space um and watch the sun go down and it's a it's real dichotomy because on the one hand you feel i mean the, the feeling of danger is palpable out there because you know you just know you're in such an exposed situation and yeah. you know you're in a vacuum and you're a long long way from that airlock you're not getting back to the airlock in a hurry so you just it's quite lonely do yeah, you feel alone? You, you do. You feel incredibly isolated, yeah. incredibly remote. But it's also, it's really calm and serene. And it's 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 not like free fall parachuting. Well, I never got to the point in parachuting where I felt, you know, I didn't get an adrenaline oh, buzz. Yeah. I don't know if you did. But <laughs> I oh, always yeah. got the adrenaline oh. buzz. Um, I did as well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but on a spacewalk, it was... Um, really relaxing you know it's just like wow this is incredible you're just floating there looking down on earth but you are doing 17 yeah yeah thousand miles an hour but in a purely peaceful serene environment and feeling like an imposter you know just feeling like we shouldn't be here yeah, you know, yeah. this is this is weird this is not something that our brain was designed to comprehend were you able to do what's the exercise routine like on the iss yeah, we exercise uh, about two hours a day, um, and it's all, it's all geared towards trying to maintain cardio fitness because your heart muscle will shrink. So yeah. you, uh, we go on the bike. Uh, the bike gets the cardio levels up. We've got a uh, device called A-Red, which can exercise major muscle groups. It's a bit like a multi-gym, just uses vacuum cylinders. So we're working against uh, a vacuum cylinder to give us the resistance training. Um, and we've got a running machine. So a mixture of those devices and it's obviously really important as well. It is. It is important to so that you feel okay when you come back to Earth. It's not. It's not actually important to exercise in space to in, to, to live in space. Yeah. You know. In fact, in fact, you should just let the body do what it wants to do because it's doing a brilliant job. It's turning itself into this fantastic, you know, being for designed for space. Yeah. Um, and it never ceases to amaze me how good our body is to adapting to, uh, quickly to new situations. So it's not like being in that environment. It's not going to kill you. You don't need to do exercise to stay alive or anything. No. Like that. No. It's not at all. Um, uh, I mean, it would be a pretty cruel experiment, but it would be fun to see 
what happens to the human body if you don't do any exercise because yeah, yeah. actually you would become you know you become perfectly suited for space the and problem is as soon as you come back into a gravity environment you know you'd be it'd be really painful your heart wouldn't be able to pump enough blood around your body um, your bones would be brittle and it would risk fracturing um, you know and all so these problems so the body would adapt so quickly to being in space but it would essentially just ruin it for coming back to planet Earth. yeah yeah in the early days we had some cosmonauts coming back with 20 percent bone loss um after you know relatively short period in space so it's amazing how quickly your, your body adapts what was probably the most amazing thing you saw while you were up there um i think the most spectacular thing is to see the aurora because i'd never seen that from from earth before yeah and i mean i know it can be absolutely stunning um, when people do see it from earth but to see it from space, you just see the entire, you know, polar cap, North Pole, South Pole, covered in this beautiful, beautiful shimmering green. So you can see it from above light. then? Oh, it's, it's so intense. It's incredible. I mean, it's uh, it's amazing. It looks like the whole planet's on, on fire with this green, orange, uh, reddish firework. Um, it's amazing to see from space. I have, I have actually seen it in Norway as a young, young lad when I was in the Marines, and it was amazing. We spent hours just watching this. Yeah, weird, shimmery, almost spectral glow happen, but I didn't. I didn't realize you could see it from space because I thought it was a thing where you had to be in the atmosphere. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, but it's uh, amazing to look down, uh, look down on it, and and I think it just makes you realize, you know, the planet is so alive, and and when you see the planet against that backdrop of the universe, and um, it puts it just puts it into perspective. And I think here on Earth we we lose track of that, and and we're becoming ever more distant to uh, our, our heritage and the fact that we're animals and we're part of nature. Yeah. You know, we've got so much technology going around us um, and we look up and we see a nice blue sky if it's a nice day. And from space, it's it's not warm and cosy in space. It's, mm. it's intimidatingly hostile and black. And I think it just makes you appreciate that actually this is, you know, uh, our planet is doing a great job at looking after us. Our life raft. Yeah, it is yeah. our life raft, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you obviously saw huge weather systems, ones that were probably famous on the news for mm. wrecking havoc on planet Earth. But yeah, yeah just an amazing, I, I can't get my head around it, to be honest with you. I find it, I find it totally fascinating. You have to come back to Earth. You're obviously looking forward to coming back because of family and that. Do you, you know, when you, you come away from the space station, I take it's in the same, same craft that you arrived in. Mm. Is there an element of missing that place as soon as you leave so there's lots of places i've been that i always can't wait to go home mm. and then i always look back with nostalgia on it and be like oh i sort of miss that place is, yeah. is there an element of that completely absolutely and what was really strange i was um i was up there when scott kelly and misha kornienko were doing their year-long stay in space so we arrived at their kind of eight month point and um on the day that they were going back we had to go and grab Scott Kelly and physically kind of pull him <laughs> into the Soyuz spacecraft and say, you're going home. You know? <laughs> and of course, he, he'd been in space a year. He wanted to go home. He was desperate to see his yeah. family, loved ones. But he knew that he was going to be saying goodbye to this incredible place. And um, and he was taking photographs to the, to the very end, looking out the cupola window. So you do, you leave the space station with a huge sense of nostalgia. Um, and also it's, it's like going from an ocean liner into a tiny life raft. You crawl into your Sawyer's spacecraft and you know, that, that is your lifeboat. It's there. Yeah. You, you go back in the same spacecraft. If anything happens, if there's an emergency, that's your escape vehicle. 
So you crawl into this tiny Sawyer spacecraft again, and at the moment you undock, you just feel so vulnerable. You're in this tiny little spacecraft yeah. uh, with much more reduced um, systems if something goes wrong. So there, just quickly, there's there's enough room for two of these space Sawyers to dock. Is that right? Because obviously one's delivering and taking away, and yeah, so well, on. yeah, well, no, we can we can dock. Uh, four or five Soyuz, uh, and that's just at the Russian end, and then the US end, you can dock another four or five visiting vehicles. So the space station could be a really busy place. Wow. Um, when we were up there at one point, we had a Dragon cargo vehicle, a Cygnus cargo vehicle, two Soyuz, and a Progress vehicle. And it's sometimes like Piccadilly Circus with spacecraft coming and going. Um, yeah, it can be busy. What was what was re-entry like? How, how is, is that... A- a light as exhilarating as the launch yeah re-entry is a lot of fun i mean re-entry is the roller coaster bit so anybody who likes you know roller coasters that's the that's do you feel that yeah you do Um, it's interesting because the first orbit once you've undocked the first orbit's very quiet not much happens and then everything happens on the second orbit and about half the way around the planet from where you want to land you put the brakes on so you turn the spacecraft around and you burn the engine in the direction of travel because that's how you come back to Earth, is you have to slow down. If you don't slow down, you're not never coming home. So that's a big moment when you kind of press the button to ignite the engine that it's going to all work and ignite. Uh, and then that burn has to be uh, to the second accurate, because if you burn it too long, you'll slow down too much, you'll come in too steep and burn up. And if you don't burn it long enough, you'll just kind of go through the upper atmosphere and back out into space again. So um, that burn, once it's done, you know that you're on this trajectory that's going to bring you back to your landing point. And then the spacecraft separates into three bits, blows itself apart, pyrotechnic bolts. So that's all very dynamic and loud. And, and then it's, it's basically tumbling out of control. You're just falling, waiting for the atmosphere to pick you up. And it's crazy looking out the window at that point because you just see the Earth going over and over as you're tumbling kind of head over heels. Um, and then it gently, it slows down and gently this, it writes itself heat shield first. And that's when you know that the atmosphere is starting to pick you up. Um, and then the G-forces start. You start feeling this gentle push in your back. And it's not aggressive or violent at first. It is just like somebody pushing you. Yeah. And then it builds up quite quickly. So you'll see 1G, you know, 2G, 3G, 4G. Uh, and that's quite hard after you know six months in weightlessness to have all this pressure. pressure yeah. Uh, and it gets very hot. Um, you're wrapped in a ball of plasma, 1700 Celsius outside, and um, and everything is you know, you're dripping with with sweat inside your spacesuit, and really, really uh, quite punishing during that part. And then the parachutes open, and when the parachutes open, that's the crazy bit. That's when the spacecraft is just all over the place. You're still going just over the speed of sound when the braking <laughs> chutes come out. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, I've looked up back at the GoPro video uh, that I had on the whole time, and I mean, I'm just grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> it's, it's like a really wild roller coaster ride. What's your biggest takeaway from that experience? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's the, it's the fragility of Earth, and um, I kind of say that in in actually, I should say the fragility of our species. I think because when you see the planet from space, you just realise how precarious we are and how <coughs> how tiny our atmosphere is. Tiny. I mean, it's thin. It's it's minuscule. Um, I you know we're actually as a species we're much more fragile. I think the Earth will survive what, yeah. what we throw at it. It'll wipe us out, and then you know life will start again. Uh, uh, but you, you see that from space and it really brings home how 
how precious the atmosphere is and yeah. you know uh, and how thin it is and um and i think it's an environment when you work together uh you know we've got russian friends up there um, americans canadians japanese europeans all working together and you see the earth as you know one system all interconnected yeah. and i think the biggest the biggest takeaway you have when you get back from space is that you know we're all we're all in it together as you said it's the life raft we're all on you know yeah. we need to we, we need to we will be working together I love the fact that we've got people working together up there who, who would normally, you know, because of you know pol politics and mm. where they're from, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily believe that would be the case. But it's good to see that it does happen, and especially in that position where it's looking on down on us and yeah, you know, trying yeah. to hit home that we should all maybe get on a little bit better. Yeah, what's new? What's next for you? There's rumours about the moon. Yes, yeah, well, there's there's a second mission, hopefully, for me. The space agency's very good at flying its astronauts, the European Space Agency, and uh, so I'm hoping for a second mission, and um, that would probably be to the space station, but we're about to start a return to the moon program. Um, first right. first crewed mission in 2023. That's going to go around the moon, a bit like Apollo 8 did. Yeah. And then after that, we'll be into the moon landings. Um, so, you know, we're part of that program, so who knows? You might get to see a... British astronaut on their way to the moon. And what's your what's your thoughts on that? Oh, my hand is high in the air, <laughs> high in the air for that one. That would be amazing. Right, what I'm going to do now is quickly refer to um, the Book of Man's Instagram account, where we ask people to send in um, um, questions. This is from Vi Vi and George. Well, Viv I don't know. That's not so it's V Y V Y A N and then George, all one word. What experiments on the ISS was your favourite to be involved with or to, or to see? Um, favourite experiment? Well, there was, I'm going to give two of these. Favourite from a point of enjoyment was this thing called airway monitoring, where we ended up having to use the airlock as a, uh, a reduced pressure chamber for the first time to do science. So we're investigating um, why our airway becomes inflamed and how we can stop it from happening. So we'll benefit asthma sufferers here on Earth. So that was a really interesting one to be in, involved in. Uh, but the science I think that's doing the most good at the moment, are the, um, we're growing protein crystals in space. Because if you grow a protein crystal on Earth, it's um, sedimentation and gravity causes it to be small and crack and impure. Yeah. And the way that the pharmaceutical companies develop drugs is that the drug has to fit around this protein crystal like a 3D kind of jigsaw puzzle. So mm -hmm. if you can grow really large, pure crystals, disease-causing crystals, crystals you can develop drugs with fewer side effects um, and low dosage rates so we've got you know huntington's parkinson's disease motor neuron disease we're growing those kind of crystals in space and then bringing them back down to earth where the pharma companies now can create much much better drugs i think there's a lot of lot more we can be doing with that in space i think that's really exciting research awesome tim before you go your book limitless is out it's um i'm 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 getting through it now and i love it it's brilliant so uh, for anyone that wants to get hold of it because it will put a lot more meat on the bones of this uh, podcast where can they get it the usual outlets usual outlets it's available everywhere so yeah um yeah enjoy it is it's awesome good it's got pictures in as well which always makes me happy <laughs> but uh, yeah tim thank you so much for coming and being the first person really of 2020 to come and and at the end of it as well to do this podcast in person. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thank no you. worries. Thanks very much. Thanks very much to Tim. Hope you enjoyed it. His book Limitless is out now. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and follow me and the Book of Man for the latest news. 
Thanks again to Talisker for supporting this podcast and thanks to you all for listening. Take care and I'll see you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 